Welcome to Curious and Quirky. We believe curious leaders change the world. Curious and Quirky is a LinkedIn live event with course leaders from Caltech Executive Education. This is a fast-paced, five-minute-per-speaker, oh yeah, take on what's hot in marketing, innovation, transformation, future of work, platform strategy, design, and agility. Brought to you by the course leaders from Caltech Executive Education. All right. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, friends. Wherever you're joining us, welcome to this month's Curious and Quirky. My name is Tim Boyd, your host for this month's session. And as with all of our sessions, we'll be discussing some of the most intriguing and insightful topics in the world of business with the brilliant minds of the Caltech Executive Education team. If you have any questions, comments during today's session, we'd love to hear from you. So please put your comments and your thoughts and any questions you might have in the chat window, and we'll make sure to respond during today's session. And with that, I'd like to introduce you to one of the most insightful marketing experts in the field today who has a passion for helping companies evolve their organizations from being product-centric to one more focused on putting customers at the center of the enterprise. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Tom Spitale. Thanks, Tim. A few months back, my Curious and Quirky talk was about a brand new executive priority, improving the customer experience. Several surveys have shown that many executives now consider improving the customer experience a higher priority than even product or price improvement. Now, a corresponding trend that goes along with improving the customer experience is a movement to gain new understanding into what customers are actually thinking and feeling when they do business with you. Now, turning these discoveries into value propositions that benefit customers and your company is called insight. Companies are investing more money, time, and effort than ever in trying to generate insights. In fact, over 60% of our own client base have a formal insights generation program right now. And many more are talking about one. Uh, programs where they're teaching their marketing and customer contact personnel to recognize, find, and monetize insights. And in the process, many are unfortunately creating overly complicated vocabulary definitions and tools that are having the exact opposite effect, causing companies to even miss insights that they could leverage. So today I want to talk about how you can avoid overcomplicating your insights program. Now, the fabulous amounts of data that is available to firms today provides a lot of what we might call tactical insights. We can quickly find out important things like sending out emails on Wednesday mornings are better, more responsive than sending them out on like Friday afternoons. And we can find out less useful things from data, like we sell a lot of socks to guys named Kevin on the second Tuesday of every other month. These tactical insights at best can help us to optimize our strategy execution. And because these types of insights are so data-driven, we see firms applying an unreasonable data standard to even broader types of insights that we call strategic insights. These are insights that often come from observations of customer behavior and actions that yield new and powerful learning. Now, by definition, these observations, there's like not a statistical basis for them. And more and more often, we're seeing firms reject these observations as non-insights. And that's a huge mistake. 
For example, imagine some respected members of a healthcare product sales force identify a trend whereby medical buyers are taking a back seat in the sales conversation to more economic and business-minded buyers. Now, the question is, is that an insight? Well, we think it is. If you wait and try to collect the data on this, the competition may have already befriended these new types of buyers. By the way, this isn't a made-up scenario. This kind of trend is happening all across our customer base. Here's another example. We had a wound care client, wound care client, who created an incision closing device that was not unlike a glue stick. So for many reasons, this glue stick wasn't gaining adoption by surgeons. But some marketers in the company observed one surgeon who was taking the glue stick and applying it on top of traditional sutures in, in addition to traditional sutures. He said he wanted some extra insurance that the incision stayed closed. Is that an insight? Despite only one surgeon being observed doing this, it wouldn't meet any standard of statistical significance. However, we still think it's at least a potential insight. And it became a real insight when the company went on to profitably remarket the device as insurance for when you really need an incision to stay closed. Finally, we had a smoking cessation pharmaceutical product that was failing in the marketplace despite having some obvious advantages. Now, one of their employees was in a strategy session with this, and he happened to be an ex-smoker. And he mentioned that he had tried to quit smoking several times on his own before trying any other pharmaceutical products because it costs nothing to quit cold turkey. Is this anecdotal observation and insight? Well, it is, because the company went on to do some further research on self-quitting and found that their real competitor was not other pharma-based smoking cessation products, but the act of trying to quit on one's own. They recast their value proposition to highlight the benefits of quitting on your own, and they're still running the commercials almost a decade later because those commercials work. Point is, Setting an unreasonable data standard for strategic insights overly complicates an insight generation program. And by understanding the difference between strategic and tactical insights, you'll stop rejecting ideas that could dramatically change the fortunes of your company. Strategic insights come from observing customer behavior, asking the right questions, getting broad cross-functional input, and they probably won't come from analyzing the data you already have. So this can be a great source of those tactical insights I mentioned earlier. Once a potentially insightful observation is made, data can then be gathered to support whether that observation is true. Our glue stick maker surveyed doctors to see if they would actually use the product as insurance, and many of them said they would, and they did. There's two lessons here. One, don't overcomplicate your strategic insights program by applying an unreasonable data standard. And two, take a break from analyzing data and go observe customers. More time out of the office spent in the field observing buyers is the counterintuitive secret to gaining return on investment from a company's insight generation program. I guess what I'm really saying is the key to improving the customer experience through insights is observing the customer experience. So for, your, for our next experience, I'm going to turn it over to Jenny Erdo, who's going to talk about one of my favorite subjects. Take it away, Jenny. Thank you, Tom. So what I'd like to talk to 
you all about today is something that's getting a lot of attention in the press lately, which is the four-day work week. So just as an example, the New York Times reported that the experiment in Britain involving a four-day work week has found little effect on productivity. And in some cases, there's actually been an increase in productivity. And this is according to a survey of the participants that was recently published. So a little background about this trial in Britain. So more than 70 companies have participated, and that's representing about 3,300 workers across a wide variety of industries, banking, marketing, healthcare, financial services, retail, and hospitality, and other industries. And they're taking part in this pilot, which is one of the largest studies on this to date. And so now that the pilot, they're, they're halfway through this six-month pilot, and 35 of the 41 companies that responded to the survey said they were likely or extremely likely to consider continuing this four-day work week, which is, which is really curious. All but two of the 41 companies said productivity was either the same or had improved, and six companies said productivity had significantly improved. So the curious question, you know, when you think about it, are we working five days a week just because we've done that for more than a century? Or is it really the best way? So, so I was, again, very curious about this. So I took a, a look back in history. So whereas a four-day work week may seem like a radical idea today, history shows that we've been gradually reducing the number of hours worked within a typical work week since the late 19th century. And to kind of give you a little history, in 1890, the United States government estimated that a full-time employee within a manufacturing plant worked an average of 100 hours a week. So the factory owners were reluctant to leave their machines idle. So in the 19th century, it was common for working hours to be between 14 to 16 hours a day, six days a week. And these long hours were enforced by factory owners who wanted to maximize their profits. So it took until the 1926 when Henry Ford popularized the 40-hour work week because he discovered through his research that working more yielded only a slight increase in productivity, and that only lasted a brief period. So here we are thinking about reducing our current work week to 28 hours, which is not as radical as going from 100 hours to 40. And then when you think about between our bank holidays and our religious holidays, we have about a four-day work week once a month, every month of the year. So it's, it's not as radical as maybe we think it is. And so the question is, what's sparking this new interest now? Well, it, it should be no surprise that the four-day work trend has been accelerated by the pandemic, which certainly has sharpened issues around well-being, burnout, and work-life balance. And the benefits of shorter work week are believed to be increased productivity, improved mental health, better employee retention, higher talent attraction, and reducing the carbon footprint and reducing office costs, you know, just to name a few. So the list of the benefits is, is fairly significant. And some leaders of the trial said that the four-day work week had given employees more time to exercise, cook, 
spend time with their families and take up hobbies, boosting their well-being, making them more energized and productive when they're on the clock. So, so the trial is kind of surfacing these benefits as well. And as you can imagine, the job applications are soaring with these 70 companies who are uh, participating in this trial. But what it adds is another level of screening as they consider these applicants because they want to make sure they're not applying just because they think they're working less. So, so that's another consideration. And then one other aspect of this I didn't consider was the potential positive um, impact on the travel, leisure, and entertainment industries. Because a four-day work week converts into a three-day weekend. And actually, um, the AMC Theater's CEO, Adam Aaron, he spoke up about this, about the longer weekend would be beneficial to the theaters. And the statistics say that up to 75% of box office traffic is on the weekend. So Aaron took it even further and he, he had a couple of polls on Twitter and asked if he should be the one out front urging this, this uh, four-day work week. So as we can see, as we're thinking more about this, that not only is a four-day work week good for the employees, in many cases, it's good for business. And it actually creates a, a three-day three day weekend economy. So whether a four-day work week will become the new norm, I think there's going to be more and more. We're going to hear about this and maybe more studies. But what we do know is flexibility is here to stay. And, and you know, who knows? Maybe we'll find Adam Aaron in the history books alongside Henry Ford as an advocate for a shorter work week. So um, what I'd like to do now is um, hand it over to Robin, who's going to continue the conversation about the, the future of work. Great. Thanks, Ginny. You know, I, I, I remember as a kid when I was grew up in, in Malaysia, my dad actually worked a five and a half work day, uh, work week. So Saturday was a half day. And um, and then it was in 1980. My gosh, we went to a five day work week for the civil service. Then it was like all the rage. And there was similar sort of outcry about, oh, my gosh, all the lost productivity and, you know, same amount of work still got done. And that weekend economy slowly grew, I think, um, because now you had two full days. Think of what we could do with three full days. But I want to sort of actually build on where Ginny started and stick with the human side of this work equation. So full disclosure, I sit on a committee at the World Economic Forum that has been developing a framework for good work. And as I think everyone knows, over the course of the last three to four years, thanks to the good work of folks like Larry Fink and others, you know, many organizations have been making some really significant commitments to ESG and a living wage for their workforces, uh, again, for the last three to four years. As we have approach what might be a bit of a double whammy of both continued inflation and reduced demand from a recession. I can't help but wonder how companies are going to live up to these commitments without a fundamental reset in a couple of things. One, the expectations of their shareholders, things that their shareholders have become conditioned to for the last 30 or 40 years, and two, how they actually run their businesses going forward in terms of their operating models. Will they be willing to accept lower margins and deviate from that legacy formula of 15% annual earnings growth and regular share buybacks that has worked so well in powering their stock prices for the last 30 plus years? 
Or will they be willing to no longer look to grow shareholder value at that pace, which has been in many instances through different recessions, largely funded through reductions in labor cost? And will they instead be willing to shift wealth back to labor to reduce inequality? The original reason why they signed up to these commitments of living wages and the like. My colleagues at Mercer have done some really interesting research over the course of, frankly, this last week, actually, with a group of CEOs and CFOs. And there's some really interesting findings. So this is hot off the press, has not been shared broadly. But 57% of CEOs and CFOs are planning a reduction in force in 2023 on account of what they see as being the impact of rising interest rates on their business models. 48% will look to increase variable staffing, i.e. gig workers. Although interestingly, 53% have no plans to provide any incremental job security to those gig workers. 34% will decrease and 22% will pause all of their learning and development activities, which I find really interesting since learning and development has become so pivotal over the course of this pandemic, over the course of as, as our business models have increasingly digitalized and changed. Some interesting findings that don't give me a lot of hope for companies sticking with their commitments to ESG and the living wage. Now, a counterpoint to this is a recent New York Times article entitled, Companies Hoarding Workers Could Be Good News for the Economy. I found that this piece particularly interesting. The writer makes the point that the new perspective on work is one where if business falls off, then owners of, of those businesses, would their first resort would be to cut the hours uh, of, of their workforces. And this somewhat makes sense because the the gig economy has sort of proliferated so extensively that talent would be able to supplement their hours and income with gig work. Second, those owners would be taking pay cut themselves. Note to many CEOs listening, um, you know, that point about the shift in wealth from shareholders and owners to, to labor and firing would be a last resort. I took a lot of, found a lot of uh, reason for optimism there to counter the research that my, my colleagues and I have just done. But it did force a, a question, you know, is talent the new cash? Is talent the thing that you hoard, which we have typically done in the face of a recession? In the face of a recession with rising inflation, you know, we know that cash has finite value and with 10% inflation is going to depreciate even quickly. My friends in Turkey, which is running at 83% inflation, talk about trying to spend as much money in the morning because it's worth less in the evening. But if cash is going to be shrinking in value, we know that talent does not. Its value can actually grow exponentially if you know how to use it, nurture it, and deploy it to power your business model. I do hope that all of those CEOs who are grappling with these challenges, the 57% that are looking to engage in 2023, actually step back and ask the question about where the economic power, where the engine of value in their enterprises really lies and how they are going to frankly live up to commitments that they made during times of plenty, because those commitments are going to be sorely needed by the world at large. With that, I want to hand it over to the irrepressible Alan Dunn. 
Thank you, Robin. I appreciate those comments. You know, I've said for a lot of years that the reason that talent is not considered something to hoard is because the accounting profession continues, certainly in the manufacturing world, continues to think of labor as a variable cost. And it's not a variable cost. It never has been a variable cost. As soon as we start getting into our brains or our biological EPROMs up there, a person is is a, really a fixed or a semi-fixed cost, and we ought to nurture it and maintain it the same way we maintain machines. Then I think that all of a sudden, We'll have a whole different perspective on on this hoarding or maintaining of this human asset. So I do appreciate that. And that actually uh, segues nicely into the discussion that I want to have today, which is really about everything we've been through in this global supply chain world. I was struck by an article uh, by AOL. Um, it was an interview that they had done with Jim Farley, the CEO of Ford, who said, in terms of supply chain today, it feels like we're in a whack-a-mole world. And what he meant was, is that, you know, from a supply chain problem, we first dealt with, you know, the pandemic, then inflation, then currency volatility, then logistics imbalances, you know, ships in the wrong place, containers in the wrong place, talent shortages, restrictive tariffs, energy shortages, then hurricanes, of course, and other natural disasters. He seems to, it's just one after the other and has really caused immense uh, problems and created immense havoc in the global supply chain world. I don't have a single client in the, the supply chain world that isn't experiencing uh, extremely long lead times on components. On a board I sit on, we were building a factory equipment that in 2019 would have had a lead time of about eight weeks is now 52 to 65 weeks. It's really hard when you're building a factory to wait around for 65 weeks for the equipment to arrive. So what this leads us to is this idea of resiliency. Resiliency suggests that we we have to have a mindset that says the world is always going to be confusing, it's always going to be complex, and it's always going to be chaotic. And if, if you understand that, then we build plans and strategies that always have a plan B and a plan C in place to cover for the unknown. Now, that's kind of the point of resiliency. It's about planning for the unknown. So after reading uh, the article from uh, Mr. Farley, I decided to talk with a few of my research friends, and one in particular, uh, Steve Melnick from, from Michigan State, uh, also Newcastle um, professor, uh, who's just a top, top scholar. And we, we kind of brainstormed on what companies should be doing. And we did a bit of a, of a uh, survey on this. We talked to 602 uh, supply chain leaders, so VPs of supply chain or or sales and operations planning, or whatever the, the title was. And we talked to them, we said, okay, if supply chain resiliency is defined as the ability to prepare for and to recover from disruption, then what should be done? And we've kind of when we talked to them, we noticed very quickly that they all wanted to talk about both both short-term and long-term. And the question was, what does one do in the short term to become resilient, considering where we're at today in the world. So let's understand where we're at in the world today. We have a global supply chain world. We've said for a lot of years that September 11 of 2001 was a terrible day. That was the day the World Trade Centers came down. And that changed all of our lives. But December 11 of that same year also impacted all of our lives. And that's when China was admitted to the WTO. And that changed global supply chain dynamics forever. So, so we are now a global, we all live in a global economy we all have global supply chain issues. It's just that we've got a lot of underlying causes of supply chain disruption simultaneous in today's world. 
So we said, okay, in the short term, what do we do about that? Uh, we have containers and ships all the wrong place in the world uh, as a result of crew movements, as a result of lockdowns from COVID, uh, as a result of some political things that are going on in the world. And so we have, we, we looked at all of this and we said, okay, short term, uh, and here's what the executives kind of told us. And and, uh, and we kind of uh, added to that a little bit. And we came out with four short term uh, recommendations based on the smart decisions of those who actually have resilient plans in place. The first one was to immediately, these companies immediately went through and re-stratified all their inventory. So you take a car company like Skoda in uh, in Poland, immediately go through all of their components to make a car and stratify them by two factors. Now, what they were really doing is looking at criticality of components. And they discovered very quickly that criticality has nothing to do with how many of a component you use and, and what the cost of that component. That the criticality components turn out to be length of lead time of a component, the quality and supply variations from the supplier that you experience, the number of qualified suppliers, and also the last one would be with we termed the, the number of impactants. In other words, the things that impact the supplier, well, where their factories are located, uh, where the weathers, the political climates, the currency issues, all of those uh, things, or we just refer to them as impactants. But that what we discovered is that the smart uh, supply chain executives were stratifying all their inventory and looking at two primary elements of those four criticality components. And one of them was the length of lead time, and the other one was the number of alternate sources of supply. And what they did is they, they, they looked at all of their components, they stratified that, and the top 20% of the items that had long lead time, the combination of long lead times and uh, few alternate sources, that's where they put all their effort. And in fact, what they did starting as early as late March of 2020 is they just bought everything they could. They stopped worrying about inventory management. They stopped worrying about how to keep inventory low. Those items in the top 20%, almost across the board, those companies just bought up everything they could. And by the way, that created shortages for an enormous number of other companies that now no longer had access to that supply source. The other thing that they did is they they prioritized supplier lead time reductions instead of cost reductions. In other words, they went to the suppliers and said, we're going to not beat you up on the price you pay or charge us for the components. What we're going to do is we're going to incentivize you to put us at the top of your list and to deliver quickly. And so in other words, they saw component prices actually gone up. In fact, these companies actually offered their suppliers a price increase if they got to the top of the allocation list in return. And that turns out, as one of the uh, heads of supply chain said to us, a big food products company, he said, yeah, I don't like the fact that I have all this inventory, but I really do like the fact that I'm able to supply my customers. And then he said the magical words to me. He said, you know, Alan, I have this sense that in a recession, that market share trades hands more readily in these kinds of problems. So if I can use my capital to be able to pay suppliers more, to get them to deliver quicker, and I can supply my customers with products that others can't because they are stuck in that old inventory control mentality, he says, then I'll exit this time of trauma, this time of supply chain disruption. I'll exit it with more customers. I will win market share through a supply chain strategy. And that, and they did that. And that's a very short-term sort of strategy, but it worked. And the other thing 
thing they did is that they started almost universally uh, across the board. The great companies took a look at their forecast error. So every month they look at what are they sold versus what they forecasted. And what they did is they used that to change the safety stocks of all the lower level components and actually increase the safety stock based on forecast error because forecast error is all about risk. So those were the short term things uh, that they did. Then we asked them about the longer term things that they did. And they almost all said, look, we've got to adopt standardized processes in our factories. So our factory in Prague runs the same way as our factory in Louisiana runs as the same one in the UK runs. The other thing they did is that they had to move toward away from this kind of sequential mentality and they had to move more to a concurrent process. So in other words, they're, they're, they're doing more things at the same time, implementing more um, improvements at the same time rather than thinking se- sequentially. The other thing that they proposed and that they most of them started doing is uh, implementing the, the principle of postponement. In other words, don't assemble the car until you have an order for it. Have all the sub-assemblies, have everything ready to go, and be able to take all those major sub-assemblies and go from piles of sub-assemblies to a finished car in 24 hours. And then basically go from make to stock to to make to order. From a long-term perspective, they said one of the ways to eliminate risk in the supply chain is to be able to postpone production till the last possible moment, which of course is the reason why companies are now looking at building smaller mini factories globally instead of big, huge, fully integrated factories. Get Put the factories where the customers are, and from a supply chain perspective, then naturally feeds the concept of postponement. And of course, the last one was literally don't try to be a company that optimizes every possible resource in a world that is changing so rapidly. As one guy, gentleman said to me, he says, look, we have, we live in a disruptive world now. And, and so we've, we've gotten through the pandemic mostly. We've got a whole, we've gotten through hurricanes, but then we have a war in Ukraine that uh, a lot of folks didn't see coming in the supply chain world. So what's the next one? So he said, build strategies, global supply chain strategies that presume a disruption will occur rather than hoping it doesn't occur. And with that, I would like to turn this over now to the next speaker, which is Peter. Peter, I hope you're there. I am. Indeed. Thank you so much. Great conversation. Learned a lot so far today. What I'd like to talk about is uh, some interesting M&A activity. There's a South Korean company called Naver. Naver was founded back in 1999. It's been around for a while. It's uh, the largest search engine in South Korea, and it's the fifth largest search engine in the world. And this company over the years has gotten into mobile communications. It's done alliances and actually acquisitions in Japan with messaging uh, applications like Line. But what happened this month is that they went out and bought Poshmark for $1.2 billion in cash. So what is Poshmark? Poshmark is uh, an American-based platform that is a social marketplace for fashion where people can buy used clothing and accessories. So it's this idea of reuse, right? It's headquartered in Redwood City in California, and it has an annual revenue of about $160 million, and it was founded in 2019. So it's relatively new, but it uh, points to this trend towards turning kind of these thrift stores into digital platforms. Last year, Etsy did a similar acquisition. You know, Etsy is the kind of the crafts platform that's grown quite 
dramatically in the last number of years. Um, it bought a resale platform called Depop for $1.6 billion. Um, so we're seeing kind of an aggregate, aggregation and consolidation. The neighbor is interesting because, you know, Asia is not well known for reuse. Traditionally, Asian consumers really like new products. And so this has caught some people's attention that, you know, the Asian markets are, are shifting a bit to thinking more about thrift and reuse. In fact, there's been some recent articles about uh, frugality in uh, China, for example, and uh, this being a new trend in something that uh, more and more young people are gravitating to is not this uh you know, continuous consumption, but thinking smartly about your purchases. Another interesting development this month was that Goodwill has launched a digital platform as well. You know, uh, Goodwill's been around for 120 years. It operates 3,300 physical stores, but it is now launching a digital marketplace called Goodwill Finds. And there's some pretty amazing things. If you go onto their website, which I did yesterday, um, you can find a Louis Vuitton bag for $900, and you can also find a Chanel bag for $1,200. So they're not just doing, you know, the... Uh, secondhand t-shirts, they're going higher end um, and putting some very well-known fashion brands of items. But these are reused items, right? They're not new. They actually have had a previous owner. And so this idea of refurbishing and reselling is, is quite interesting. Now, Goodwill also, if you check out their website, they call it a shop with a positive impact. And they actually have a nice little section talking about buying used jeans. If you know anything about the jeans market is, is that the tremendous amount of water is used in producing jeans. And so they are promoting the idea that buying one pair of secondhand jeans can conserve more than 1,800 gallons of water. So that's pretty impressive, right? And so this idea of not just buying and throwing away things or leaving them in their closets. And in fact, um, there have been surveys done that show that um, people only wear 20% of the clothing in their closet. So that means 80% of it is just sitting there. So there's tremendous opportunities to get into what people are calling re-commerce, right? And taking items. And there's some really interesting platforms in this space. So Gazelle is a consumer electronics re-commerce company founded in 2007. It's headquartered in Boston, and what it specializes in is in consumer electronics. So, of course, these can also be reused. There are other, again, back into the fashion world, ThreadUp is a company that allows people to buy and sell clothes online, reused. Uh, they're based out of San Francisco. So this, I think, introduces an interesting idea. You know, the conventional kind of wisdom in, in um, companies was this idea of, of going green, but that was to um, just avoid negative impacts. But increasingly, they're thinking about moving into restorative or even regenerative. How do you actually improve things, not just stop things from getting worse, but actually improve the economy? So there's this new concept of um, the regenerative economy, and you'd be surprised at some of the big brands that have um, begun to embrace this. So Unilever, Nestle, Walmart, Pepsi, Ikea have all announced programs around this idea of not just reducing the negative environmental impact, but actually restoring and bringing back to. And this includes 
you know, things like uh, reusing their products and recycling. So you can go and they have initiatives now and there's kind of this new campaign. So I think, what does this tell us? I think that there's this bigger trend and it could actually interface with um, talk you guys have mentioned already today, concerns that we're going to go into a recession. In a recession environment, people think, um, how do you reduce costs? So you could see actually just as COVID opened up new opportunities and ways in which we interacted and reshaped the nature of work, a recession in these DNA plus platforms that allow for the connection of in discovery of items could actually be a boost to this idea of re-commerce. So those are my thoughts for today. We'll do one more speaker here to wrap things up. Thanks, Peter. So I have an interesting topic today, but I would like to take a step back and actually abstract the conversation a bit and try to focus on some of the intangibles that uh, companies are now focusing on, as you've heard today uh, from uh, all my colleagues here on the call. The power of building, say, high-performing teams building strong execution cultures, and being able to rally around a common cause really is the dream of every company out there. But all that really takes a tremendous amount of time. And we've gone through a variety of cycles over the last couple of years where people are trying to re-strategize and rebalance and, and try to understand what all that means at this point in time with the new norm of the culture they find themselves in today. And myself, I've been thinking a lot about time lately. Um, not necessarily in the ephemeral or the generational sense that we humans traditionally tend to think about time, but on a really a much larger scale. Put it in perspective, things like if you think about the time the dinosaurs ruled the earth, we know it was a really long time ago, but do we really understand how long that time actually lasted? So from a, a nerdy science perspective, it takes our sun about 200 million years or so to make a full rotation around the Milky Way galaxy. To put the dinosaurs' reign in perspective, uh, the Stegosaurus and the T-Rex themselves lived on opposite ends of that Milky Way galaxy. They were so far apart in the grand scheme of things. They just actually were about 100 million years apart in, in the overall period of time. We tend to think of the dinosaurs that they were there uh, in a certain period of time. They were all kind of meshed together, but that's not necessarily true. Homo sapiens, on the other hand, have only been around for 350,000 years, a much smaller slice in time. And we continue to slowly uncover fossils and other artifacts from history that really are helping us understand what actually happened during that time period and allow us to piece together the history of the world. Time is really important. And the farther you go back in time, the more there is to learn. It's a much bigger treasure trove than people actually realize, which, what, which is why I believe that December 25th of 2021 will forever be known as the day in which our knowledge of the universe would radically be transformed thanks to the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope. Now, James Webb is designed to improve our understanding of four major areas of science, fundamental science. First light and the reionization of the universe, the assembly of galaxies in the early universe timeframe, uh, all the birth of stars and protoplanetary systems, and generally the understanding of planets themselves, including, let's say, for example, the origins of life. And you've probably seen a lot of the recent focus and announcements of the first images from the James Webb Space Telescope that really show us a tremendous amount of detail. There's all the comparisons back to Hubble, uh, but there is an image that I love. It's the SMAX 0723 galaxy cluster that has come out uh, about the last month or two. This image honestly gives me goosebumps every time I see it, not only because there are thousands of galaxies extremely visible in the image and actually with significant clarity, you can actually make out uh, a tremendous amount of the satellite systems around there or the actual spirals in those galaxies themselves, 
but it's because it's one of the few times that we've been able to actually look this deep into space. And honestly, it still blows my mind that some of those faintest visible galaxies in that image itself are over 13 billion years old, just after the universe exploded with life. An incredible find, an incredible image, an incredible entry into the book of knowledge for uh, the radical transformation of what we understand about the universe today. Now, the James Webb Space Telescope is also, I'll say, a refreshing example that we can still rally around a common cause, which is something we don't see as much in today's world. It's driven by a variety of other factors, uh, but not necessarily that mission or that, uh, that common cause um, driver. It's the product of really an incredible uh, collaboration, international collaboration, if you will, between NASA, the European Space Agency, and even the Canadian Space Agency. And according to NASA, uh, the James Webb program involved over 300 universities, organizations, and companies across more than half the United States, I think it's about 29 states, and 14 different countries themselves are all involved in making this a reality. And I always love to think about the lifelong impact and the generational stories of pride that have been instilled in so many families around the globe and be able to say, I worked on that. And they can tell their kids, they can tell their grandkids, and they can tell their families. And to me, I believe that companies are starting to realize that those intangibles are actually so powerful and they're starting to try to get back into some of that after the last few years. And I do think that those are really worth their weight in gold. And, and it feels like we've been waiting a long time for this moment in time to actually happen. Uh, but like every other moment in history, it actually has arrived. And all we have to do is make sure that we capitalize on it and ensure that what we learn by looking backwards, we can apply to the next generation uh, of lives to make their lives just a little bit better. So let's bring all of our speakers back for a five-minute roundtable conversation. Uh, we do have a few minutes left, so I'd like to open it up for some questions. If you have questions from the audience or uh, the speakers, if you have any other thoughts here, uh, we can share with each other. Jenny, how long till the four-day work week is mainstream? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we'll have to stay to that. <laughs> I thought that was an interesting topic, Jenny, mainly because there's many companies out there that actually have, I'll say, moved kind of halfway to that direction by offering incentives for their companies and different flexible work structures. You know, let's say the 980 work structure, which technically you already have half a year of 40 work weeks. Um, and so that's a really interesting step in that direction. So like you said, it's not even even it's even less radical of a change when you say now it's only 26 uh, days that you're really now giving back to the employees uh, and so uh, it's a very interesting perspective. And that doesn't even take into account, you know, in the summer, a lot of a lot of companies have summer Fridays and, and they, they kind of work through that as well. So it's really not as radical, I think, as as it appears to be. I think it's just a matter of officially embracing it. And I think that's scarier four day work week than than maybe the the actual um, doing it is so so uh, you know as I say we'll, we'll more to come I'm sure on this and we'll stay tuned yeah you know Jenny we in the 2009 participated in a study in this and and I think the four-day work week the, the data is becoming clearer and clearer all the time uh, that that uh, this is because because life's becoming more complex and there's more things for people to do other than just to go to work plus people have a greater awareness that uh, they don't necessarily live to work. Uh, one of the things that we noticed in the, in the study of 2009 was employment actually went up. And the reason is, is that there's a lot of businesses where you still have to cover those other days of the week. 
And so what happened is we found that not only did productivity increase, but we found that general employment in those areas where companies and clusters of companies tend to go to four-day weeks, we discovered that uh, they actually employment in the communities went up. So uh, an interesting uh, an interesting dilemma today is if you went to a four-day week and say, so the factory runs seven days a week and people work for it, so you, you have different shift design to do that, would, would you even be able to find all the people that you need? Um, I, I've actually joked since that study that said, look, if we went to a four-day work week, we would really, really try to find a way to solve the immigration problem because we would actually need them all. We would need them, and, we, and if we would find a way to train them and, and develop, and, and we would, you know, interestingly enough, the four-day work week, week might be an element in the success of uh, of incorporating the immigrants into the workforce. So it's a it's a it's a fascinating topic. Uh, by the way, I'm all for a one day work week. <laughs> I was going to say yeah. let's do at least four four you know four three two whatever. But it sounds like we've got enough evidence that it's got it's got huge benefits. Let's do it. Yes. All right. We've decided. Well, wonderful. Uh, we are at the top of the hour, everyone. Uh, but a big thank you to each of our speakers for a fascinating discussion and obviously offering their impactful thoughts and rock star opinions. Uh, we really appreciate all of you taking the time to join us today from all around the world. Uh, Curious and Quirky does go live every third Friday of the month, and we'll be back on November 18th with more great topics. So stay quirky, my friends. Curious and Quirky is a LinkedIn live event with course leaders from Caltech Executive Education. This is a fast-paced, five-minute-per-speaker, oh yeah, take on what's hot in marketing, innovation, transformation, future of work, platform strategy, design, and agility. Brought to you by the course leaders from Caltech Executive Education.